the story of us begins and ends with Jesus. Over these past 10 weeks, we've been going through this story from Genesis to Jesus. And now we come to kind of the finale. We're coming to the person and the work of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the person of Jesus, who he is, who he claimed to be, and what were the major uh, uh, you know, fulfillment of the prophecies as, a re- as it related to Jesus. This week, we're looking at the work of Jesus, the work of Christ. We must be a church. We must be a people who is dependent on the work of Christ. And so the, over these next few minutes, what I really hope to do is to show us our need and to gather around our need for the work of Christ and to live independence of the work of Christ. And that really kind of is, is something that is not common in our modern culture today. Our modern culture sees that there's an issue within us and an issue around us, but we believe that the solution lies within us to make it better. And what we need to see is that none of us can save ourselves. We've got to have Jesus. Secondly, it's common within the church. For people within the church, they go, okay, I know that it took the work of Jesus to save me, but I just got to do better. And I gotta, I've got to go to church. I've got to read the Bible. I've got to pray. I've got to give. I've got to serve. And after I do all these things, then I feel so much better about my relationship with God. And that, my friends is still performance-based relationship with God. And we need Jesus to continue to work for us. This same Jesus who saved us also sets us apart, sanctifies us. And so we must have Jesus do for us what we cannot. As you have seen the person of Jesus, you realize who he is and who you're not. When you look at the work of Christ, you're going to look at what you cannot do but what only Christ can do for you. And you know, as we look at the work of Christ, it's easy to kind of follow in the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and try to look and see the what happened in the work of Christ. As you get to the end of Christ's life, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, roughly 40% of the gospel narrative is his last week of life on this earth. And it culminates to a crescendo on Good Friday uh, when Jesus is crucified on a cross. As I've traveled to Israel, I've looked at, this is one of the key views I've had from the Garden of Gethsemane, looking up to the wall of Jerusalem. And at the time when Jesus was there, where that dome is on the top, that golden dome, the temple was right there. And Jesus saw this, and he, as he was praying, Father, if there's any way that this cup, your wrath, could go, you know, not through me, but, you know, just through something else, if there's any other way it could happen. And then he said, neither my will but yours be done. And he went up and he was crucified on a cross in, uh, just outside of Jerusalem. Now this is... Um, this is this, the church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and that's most likely where Jesus was crucified. And you can go to that place, and you can kind of look, and you kind of see, and there's seven, eight different denominations in that church that all think, this is where he died, this is where he died, this is died. So it's kind of commercialized. The Garden of Gethsemane was more of an experience for me. But there's something about the work of Jesus on the cross that we can't deny, And as we look at the work of of the cross, I just have to ask you, why is the cross the major picture of the Christian faith? 
Why is the cross something that Christians proclaim and celebrate? Because, I mean, really, if we have a religious leader and he's crucified on the cross and he dies, it would be real easy just to go, well, just let's now have a moment of silence as remember the death of Jesus today. And we do that solemnly and reverently. But why is it that the church is to make it all about the cross? Why is it all about the work of Jesus on the cross for us? The answer is because of the situation that we have, because of our inability to save ourselves, and because it's the only exclusive act and work that Jesus can do for us. Save us from our sin, defeat the power of sin and death in our lives. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look as Paul takes a look and glories in the cross of Christ and his work on the cross. And I think when we look at this, we're going to see some key things about us and our inability, but also Christ's ability to save us. In Romans chapter 3, he begins and he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I know as we read a passage like that and you come across a word called propitiation, it's not in our vernacular, use it for Scrabble, but we'll also get a better understanding as we go through this. So hang with me. What Paul is saying is there's something different that happened. There's something that different amongst the backs, amidst the backdrop of your life. God did something. He did something that he provided a righteousness, a right standing with God for you that he did for you. And he preaches this amongst the backdrop of our sin. Earlier in uh, Romans 3.23, when we read it, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even before that, he gives kind of, a, a, kind of a damning examination of humanity in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. If you have your Bibles open, just move your eyes back to verse 10. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then it goes on and continues, but I'll stop right now because we can't handle all that, right? Yeah, we are addicted to good news. We are addicted. That's why we like to have bad news first and have dessert as good news because we can't handle the truth about ourselves. And yet the scriptures are very, very clear. Very, very clear. Theologian scholars call this situation, this condition of man, total depravity. And that means that we are dead to God and we cannot save ourselves. As you read the scriptures, Old and New Testament, you'll see that the human condition is deaf to the voice and the word of God, blind to the way and the will of God. And that leaves us lost, dead in our transgressions and sin. And you know, there's this thought within me that I go, you know, I know the world out there is really bad and I read the news and we see the crises, different crises that come each week on our, on our feeds and we kind of just get our minds, try to get our minds around there. But are they really that bad within me? Am I really that bad? Because if you're like me, there's always that one person. Now, 
choose the empty seat. I'm not pointing at anyone. But as long as that person is, is worse than I am, I'm not doing that bad. You know, and at least I went to church today. I didn't sleep in like all those other people. I mean, I got here 20 minutes late, but I'm here. And as long as I'm not bad, that bad. But you see, I found that I fixed the horse race, right? I fixed because the standard is me. And as long, and I also choose the topic because we won't talk about the topics I struggled with today. You know, the judgmental attitude, a picture of self-righteousness. I judge over the, you know, drug addicts and bank robbers and massive, you know, serial killers. I'm, I'm not as bad as that. So I, so I look at God and I say, hey, I'm not that bad. But folks, that's, that's not what Jesus compares me to. I'm not compared. You're not compared with anyone around you. You're compared with Christ. <gasps> Just got worse, didn't it? Yeah, we are far worse than we think. I remember I took this um, small engine repair class when I was in high school. And I fixed this Briggs and Stratton engine and uh, got it running again. And I fired it up and I could, yes, I could do it. I figured out the, 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 the gas engine in America. I can do this. And then my dad goes, hey, do you think you can fix our riding lawnmower? I said, did it in high school. Could do it right here. So I started taking apart this Aaron's riding lawnmower and I started disassembling everything and there were bolts coming from everywhere and, and little rings and I, I couldn't believe this thing had that many parts and my mom could no longer park in the garage because I had a whole lawnmower and I got it done and I went, oh no, how does it go back together? It was far more complex than I could ever think. And then we actually had to shovel it back up, take it to the lawnmower guy. And if you're a lawnmower guy, you, your heart rate's going up right now. Like, what in the world? You know, who, what were you thinking? I uh, took a small engine repair class in high school. Buddy, you should have never touched this engine. So many times we do life like that. We think we can pull it apart. We think we know the problem is. In the Christian life, it's real easy to just go, just stop sinning. Just stop it. Be better. God is good. You're bad. Be good. See you next week. Let's pray. (laughs) And we can view it like that. That if it's going to be, it's going to be up to me. And we need the work of Christ. And that's why it's so important for us to get this. Whether you know Jesus or you don't, the work of Christ is designed to restore what sin destroyed in us. Folks, we are worse than we think. But can I give you some good news amongst that? You are loved far more than you can imagine. And your heavenly father knew it. He saw it and he sees it before we can even see it. He calls it for what it is. You can't save yourself. Your issue, you cannot heal yourself. You cannot restore. I will do that for you. I will do that for you. And what Paul is going to unpack for us is he's going to take us to four different places in the Roman world and he's going to tell us Jesus is enough. His work for you is enough. And so fall on Jesus. Rest in his work. Don't keep performing. Don't keep trying. Don't keep doing. Trust in what's been done for you through Christ. And so faith is ultimately trusting in what only Christ can do for you. Let's unpack this because there's four places that Paul takes us. The first place is the place of the temple, the temple of God. And he uses words 
like propitiation before, which we talked about. But he also uses words like like um, peace with God. And he tells us that the work of Christ has moved us from the wrath of God to peace with God. In chapter 5, if you flip the page, in chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So if you're going to the temple and you were at the time of Christ at the temple, you would have to become clean before you could go into the temple. And by the way, we're talking about even physically clean. So they had all these ceremonial baths called mikvahs. And you would go down the steps of the mikvah into the water, literally going under the water and then coming up out of the water and you would be physically clean. You would then grab your, your, your sacrifice that you would take to the temple and you would bring it up and it would be there that there would be a bridge that happens between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your life. And that sacrifice would provide that bridge. And so that you could stand and be covered by the holiness of God, by, by, his, by, by the, the sacrifice of that animal would cover your sins. Now, way back in Genesis, this began. Way back in Genesis, when God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of all these trees except that one. And Adam and Eve said, you're restrictive. You're not that good. I want to eat this. And they ate it and they walked away. One of the first things they recognized was their sin. They recognized the brokenness within. They recognized the differences. And instead of the differences bringing together, they tried to cover. And so the first thing you see Adam and Eve doing is trying to cover. I'm not naked. Don't know what happened. Just what happened. And what does God do? He covers them. And they had a choice then. Do you cover yourself or do you allow God to cover you? And the story from Genesis to Jesus is God's unrelenting, passionate rescue attempt of covering his people from their sin. Fully and finally, the person in the work of Jesus show up, and Jesus covers us. What happened on the cross, and why the cross is so important, is it was on the cross where the wrath of God was taken out on Christ. Literally, the God's holiness and, and God's wrath were satisfied on the cross, now, we don't like that word wrath. We think it's an old English word. We don't use it. I'm so wrathful today. We just say I'm angry, you know. But what is God's wrath? God, God's unrelenting, faithful confrontation of sin and evil. And God is passionately committed to wiping out sin and death in your life. Aren't you glad he is? The one who created you sees what stands between you and is focused on eradicating that. That's what, I like that. Now, don't point it at me, but I like that. I like that. I mean, when you're driving down the highway and someone screams by you, you just pray, God, may there be a sheriff up there with radar, <laughs> right? And when there is, like on a recent trip I took to Colorado, and a guy in a Prius is going 95 miles in a Prius. I think the solar panels were going like that on the thing. <laughs> sure enough, we drive by. Sweet justice, Lord. <laughs> so we drove by. 
But we don't like to see the radar pointed on us. We make all the excuses in the world. Oh, officer, I mean, if you saw my speedometer, it's created in a way I really don't know how fast I'm going. There's always an excuse. We don't like the wrath of God pointed at us, but we'll take it for people who mess with us, right? No, we've got to be consistent. God is passionately committed to to eradicating sin and death in your life and in this world. And I am thankful in a world that skews and clouds morals and justifies every action to why the rules don't apply to them. I am thankful that the one who holds this world in his hand is just and holy and right. And through Christ, he did not compromise his holiness to eradicate our sin. And as a result, we have peace with God. At that moment, at the temple of God, our sins are forgiven. At the temple, Christ, Christ's work fully and finally is completed. Secondly, he moves to the marketplace. And he talks about a word. It's called redemption. We'll see it in this passage here as we move back to Romans chapter 3. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, there's that word again, by his blood, to be received by faith. The word here is that we were once in, we were, we were slaves to sin, but now we're sons and daughters of God, all because of the work of Jesus. We need the work of Jesus to forgive us of our sins. On one side, there's this picture of being indebted to God, responsible for our sins and accountable for their payment. And in the Roman world, there were two places in which you were a slave, in which you could become a slave. Unlike the American experience that is based primarily on race, this was based on you being defeated by the Roman soldiers and made a slave because they're bigger, they're powerful, they beat you, you're a slave for the rest of your life. The second one was when you owed someone so much money you couldn't pay them back. And because it was a corrupt culture, they would usually take what you owed them and at an interest rate, at such a rate that you could never pay them back. So the more you worked, the higher your bill would be, you would always be a slave. So it would be the longing of every slave in Roman culture to be redeemed. And redemption was the act of a compassionate, merciful, wealthy person to pay off whatever debt you had to set you free. Redemption is what Jesus did. And Paul would use that term to show us the work of Christ. He would say, look, you are all indebted to God. You have far too much that you owe him that you could ever repay him. Stop trying, stop working, and rest in the redemption that he did on the cross. When Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by being killed himself on the cross, by doing that, he also paid the price. That's why the, the last words of Jesus is recorded is this. It is finished. The Greek word for that literally means it, that, that someone who owed you or you, you know, someone made a transaction and marked paid in full, full, final payment, nothing else. You're set free. And that's what a child of God needs to realize is that we're no longer indebted. We're forgiven. 
I'm not responsible right now anymore for paying off my sin because Jesus paid it in full. So he takes us from the temple to the marketplace, and then he develops it further as we go to the courtroom. The courtroom shows us another work of transformation, and that is from being judged to being justified. There's two things I want to talk about here. The first one is none of us like to be judged. That's why when someone gets a little close, messes with our grill, we usually go, don't judge me, don't judge me. I don't like people who judge other people. None of us do. None of us do. But when we think about standing before a holy, righteous God, what kind of thoughts go through your mind? A lot of us go right to the courtroom. We go right to the courtroom of the righteous, holy judge looking over you like, what have you done? And I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom when a sentence has been read, but I've had different friends accused of and convicted of crimes, and I've been there at the courtroom when their sentence has been read. And it's a daunting environment. And that's why many people don't like to think of God like this. But it's, it's a picture of the courtroom because we need to understand our legal standing with God because of the work of Christ. And if we can answer that dark moment in our lives and even our worst fear with God in our lives and have a confidence of Christ and rest in his work, then we might be able to just walk with a greater comfort and confidence in life. And Paul says this in Romans 3.25. He said, God brought in this new righteousness through the work of Christ to show his righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means a lot of things that I could take many messages to kind of unveil here. But the last thing I want to focus on is that God is the just one and the justifier. See, at the same moment that God looks at us and goes guilty of sin, he also steps down from the bench and he provides his only son, Jesus, who is the justifier, who lived the life and took the payment and sets us free. So we're no longer judged by God. That judgment was placed on Jesus. We're justified and set free. And what that means is that standing before God is God sees us, and this is how I remember the word justified. God sees us just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justification means. That's your standing before God. There's nothing in between God and me. When you are judged, you don't want to be around that person. You stay away from that person. You even craft your Facebook posts so that you won't be judged by that person. But when you're justified, there's appreciate, there's relationship. Life can happen again. And it moves us to this fourth environment. Remember, we've gone from the temple to the marketplace. Now we're in the courtroom. Now I'm just going to call this the family room. That, that the work of Christ ultimately restores us back to God in relationship. And we move from enemies to loved. I want you to think, just before I talk to you about this, do you know someone in your life right now who you cannot stand being around? Someone in conflict, someone who's hurt you. You go, Joe, you shouldn't have made me think about this in church. I'm going to have all those bad thoughts. But you usually tend to think the worst about them 
and expect the worst from them. And you can start writing stories and there can be many, many chapters, right? And it doesn't even have to be reality anymore. It's just you put on, they are the villain, you are the victim, and the story and the chapters just keep going in life. Whose responsibility is it to restore when you're at odds with someone? It's real easy to think that especially you've been hurt and all those bad things from the villain in your life. It's real easy for you to go, I'm not doing anything until they walk into this room, lay it all down and say they're really sorry. And it has to be in this way with this inflection before I go, okay, I'll forgive you. But what we have the picture with God is that he did not wait for us to show up and go, God, I'm really sorry, really sorry. No, he provided a way back to us before we were his friend, before we were in his family, while we were enemies. Look at Romans 5, 8. Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the work of Jesus was done for us at a point when we didn't even ask for it or want it. That shows you the heart of God for reconciliation. And that's what Paul really develops here. He says in verse 10 of chapter 5, he goes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that word reconciliation is repeated three times in those two verses just to show us God is all about reconciling with us. So do you realize what this means? Is that on one side, we're far worse than we could think. We're worse off than we even process life to be. The, the lawnmower is spread out over many garages in this room. But God, at that same moment, when he sees our sin, provides a savior, so that he is the holy righteous one, but he's also the merciful and loving God. You cannot have a holy God without being responsible to him without, with our sin. But he bears that responsibility for saving us, church. And that's why it's so important that we're not resting in our own works. We're not just trying harder. We're trusting deeper in the completed work of Christ. Let me remind you of this passage when we started. That the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets witness to it, this is a new righteousness. It's God's covering of his people. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the invitation. This is the invitation. None of us deserve this. None of us. None of this. Everyone put your hand up here. Just say after me. I do not deserve the work of Christ. Good. But all of us can have it. All of us can have it. And the moment we recognize our weakness, our sin, our fallenness, our depravity is the same moment that the light of the gospel shines into a darkness in our lives, the disparity in our lives, and it says there is hope. You can be saved. And it is a righteousness that God provides to you through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believes. And that's why the Christian life, our, our response to the work of Christ is this is that every day is a day to trust, to have faith in what only Christ can do for us. Folks, the profession of faith with our sin is, I can't. 
I can't be perfect. I can't measure up. But Christ did, and Christ can save me. Come to this reality. Put your faith in what only Christ can do for you. Number one, if you are here, and maybe your background in a church so far has been trying harder, doing more, and you're always wondering, do I have enough? Have I done enough? The answer is no. You have not done enough, and you can't do enough. So what is religion? Is religion just this massive hamster wheel that we just get on and we keep running and we go nowhere? We just keep, folks, one of my seminary professors said it really well. He says, you don't know how bad you are until you try to be good. It really is. You don't know how selfish you are until you try to love your wife. That's what it comes down to, folks, for all of us, is this recognition that only Christ can save me. Right now, you can find rest in Jesus Christ. Turn from your way. Turn from your sin. Turn from trying and trust him. For the first time, I would invite you, if you have not done this yet, to put your faith in what only Christ can do for you. Jesus, you lived for me. You died for me. You rose again for me. I believe you did that for me. And I believe that. I trust in your work. Help me to follow you. However that's going to look, I want to follow you so that you are working through me. I'm not working for you. Christian, those of you who have followed Jesus, who are walking with him, but are tempted to think you're better than everyone else. Folks, the ground is level at the cross. None of us are here because we live this fabulous life better than the rest of the world. Look at the world. They're going to hell. We're going to heaven. Hey, hey. no, none of us deserve this. But all of us can have it. Rest in the work of what only Jesus can do and live a life that makes him greater, even through your weakness. And be real. Be real with Jesus. I want to show you a video from a woman named Emily Speak. And Emily right now with her husband, Ethan, are preparing to be missionaries in Japan. And before she left, I had her uh, interviewed on what this whole work of Christ meant to her and means to her. And she's really going to speak to this after you meet Christ. But I'd, I'd love for you to hear the story. Take a look at this. My name is Emily Speak, and I grew up in a loving home, and we attended church regularly. And I was at the young age of eight when I realized that Jesus had died for my sins to give me new life in Christ. But I felt like I was in college when I began to engage in a more personal relationship with God and grow in my faith. And I joined a campus ministry where I grew to become a spiritual leader, and I learned all these things of how to lead others in their faith as well. And towards the end of college, I felt like I was beginning to feel kind of invincible um, in my faith towards things like sin and temptation and pressures from the world because I had so many impressive credentials, I felt like, in my faith, and I was impressing God along the way. And in some ways, this felt like it kind of dulled the power of the gospel to me or what it was for. And so when I got engaged after college, I began to feel the temptations and the pressures of physical and emotional boundaries and engagement. But I felt like I couldn't share with my friends that I was struggling because it felt embarrassing. Like I wanted to be the one that could lead them spiritually and show them more of an example of Christ and not that I was struggling. This went on for what felt like so long where I just couldn't, I felt like I had to hide from my friends and from God in this way. 
and my distance between my friends and what felt like with God too was growing. And I came across this book called The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. I felt like I was reading the gospel or hearing the gospel for the first time. And it really was too good to be true because Jesus had specifically died so that I wouldn't feel like I had to impress God, but rather understand that because God loved me, he made an eternal sacrifice so that we could be in relationship. And I wouldn't have to impress him and scramble to do all these things, but I could just follow him in joyful obedience. And this was life-changing because I felt like this burden was lifted and I was free to follow Christ. And since then, I feel like my relationships have been restored. And now my friends and I can speak freely about our weaknesses in Christ and our relationships feel stronger now as a result. And so if you feel like sharing your story would lead others to be able to experience Christ more fully, I encourage you to do so because I feel like it just breeds so much more intimacy in our friendships and even draws us closer to God. Hmm. Yeah. Church, our only hope is the work of Christ. Our only hope is the work of Christ, not only to save us, but also to set us apart and sanctify us. And I just want to encourage you, be good with the work that Jesus has done. It's good enough. It's enough for you. Don't try to cheat Jesus out of work in your life. Be open, be vulnerable. The more I've known Jesus, the more I've appreciated his work in my life. And the more I've had at being peace with God, having peace with God and peace with myself. I've been far more vulnerable in environments with my life when I know it didn't depend on me. I've been far more open and been more authentic when I realized my spiritual life isn't conditioned on whether or not it have been good or bad. It's been based on the completed work of Jesus. Church, rest in the work of Jesus for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which reminds us of your truth, that Jesus and only Jesus can save us and set us apart. Heavenly Father, would you move in this church? May we be people who fall on grace. May we run to the gospel, the work of Jesus in our lives to do what only he can do for us. And may his name and his glory increase on earth as it is in heaven. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.